0: Do you know that the Scriptures can speak powerfully when they don't speak at all? I know that sounds crazy, but bear with me. Sometimes what isn't said is as important as what is. And sometimes the meaning of a, a passage may hinge on what's not there. I want to give you two examples of this tool called omission, uh, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. If you want to look, I'm going to read from 2 Samuel 7, and then I'm going to read from 1 Chronicles 17. Do you remember the story about God's promise to build a house to David, a house for David? There's a record of that promise in the Samuel story and in the Chronicles story, and they're nearly the same, Nearly. But if you look closely, you'll notice something's missing in the second telling of that story. I'll show you. This is from Samuel, this is 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. This is God speaking directly to Moses. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. forever okay straightforward enough now let's look at the same story in the chronicles narrative all right this is first chronicles 17 11 through 14 first chronicles 17 11 through 14 When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever." Now here's the important question. Did you notice what's missing? When your days are fulfilled, check. That's there, both passages. I'll raise up your offspring, check. That's there, okay. He will build a house for me, check. That's there. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, check. That's there too when he commits iniquity. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Notably absent from the promise of a coming son of David in the Chronicles narrative is any mention of sin. It's just not there. And all all of a sudden, in a moment, without saying a word, the author of Chronicles sheds new light on this promise by what he omits... He is teaching us that this promise isn't ultimately about Solomon. It's about the Christ. See, originally, Chronicles was the last book of the Hebrew Scriptures. It was placed at the very end of the record of God's Word. So if you're reading the Chronicles, it's against the backdrop of thousands of years of rebellion and wrath. It's in the wake of generations of ignored warnings, generations of consequences, generations of slavery and exile. You're reading the Chronicles against the backdrop of a fallen house of David, and it wouldn't be crazy to ask big questions about whether God's promise to David was even relevant anymore. And right there in the retelling of an unshakable promise, a bright shining beacon of hope breaks through the dark haze of despair. A portrait is painted of a coming son of David who won't go the way of his fathers. A son of David who will redeem his people and restore the fallen house of Israel. He'll do it, and his house will reign over the kingdom of God forever. And that was accomplished by silence. By what wasn't said. All right, let me give you one more example. And this one is highly relevant to our passage. Let's take a look at Luke 4. Luke 4. Verses 16 through 21. Luke 4, verses 16 through 21. Hold up your Bible when you're there. The other guys don't make you do that. Let's do it again. Everybody hold up your Bible when you're there. I just missed it a little bit. All right. Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So this scene unfolds right on the heels of Christ's baptism. And just after his testing in the wilderness, after teaching in Galilee, Jesus makes his way back to his hometown. And on the Sabbath in his synagogue, Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he finds Isaiah sixty one, verses one through two, a passage that's pretty central to Israel's expectation of a Messiah. What would be the coming what would the coming Christ be like? They looked here to answer that question. Take a look. Isaiah sixty one. I'll read it to you, but if you want to look at it, that'd be good. So Jesus says that this passage is fulfilled in their hearing, meaning, if I'm reading it correctly, that Jesus is God's anointed Messiah, that Jesus will bring good news to the poor, proclaim liberties to the captive, and marshal the year of the Lord's favor. This prophecy is being fulfilled in real time as Jesus is reading this scroll. But then he stops just a moment before you'd expect him to stop. In fact, he stops halfway through a sentence. What does he leave out? And the day of vengeance of our God. Now, if you kept reading Luke, you'd see Jesus's neighbors trying to throw him off a cliff because this guy's not at all the sort of Messiah they were waiting for. They wanted a mighty mighty warrior king pouring out the vengeance of God on the Roman Empire. They wanted wealth and power, but most of all, they wanted freedom from the oppression of their enemies. And the Christ they were waiting for would lead armies and crush opposition and establish Jerusalem as the dominant world power here and now. But Jesus isn't here to wage a physical war, to establish a physical kingdom, at least not yet. And that, mas- that message was loud and clear by what He didn't say. Okay, so both these passages seem to be speaking a bit without words. Speaking with silence. Communicating something profound by what you choose not to say is a literary, literary tool called omission. And when it's done well, it can challenge expectations and shift paradigms. And something like that happens in the passage we're reading today. So let's dive in. Open your Bible to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verse one through six. Read with me. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me so let's begin by exploring the story of John in Matthew's gospel it's worth noting that John plays an important role in every gospel account we'll glance at a few of those perhaps but you should take each gospel on its own terms They're they're written to distinct groups with distinct purposes. And you can really muddy the waters by trying to read this passage through a handful of other passages not in this book. Best to stick with the book you're in and go to the others when strictly necessary. So what does Matthew have to say about John? John first shows up in Matthew 3. And everything in Matthew 3 is super relevant to this passage. So I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to, them, to him, And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Okay. So if Matthew set out to explain the purpose of John's ministry, he doesn't waste any time. In rapid succession, we're told that one, the preaching of Jesus and the preaching of John are relatively indistinguishable. Here's what I mean. If you take a look just a chapter over at Matthew 4.17, notice that Matthew's summary description of uh, John's teaching and Matthew's summary description of Jesus' teaching are identical. Same words. He says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay. Not fundamentally a different message. Second, John is the forerunner to the Christ prophesied in Isaiah. And Matthew's first priority seems to be highlighting the fulfillment of this prophecy in the ministry of John. Third, John knows that the Christ is coming. Notice his words. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Fourth, John seems to understand the nature of Christ's mission. He says... He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Clearly, there's more to the coming Christ than a political upheaval in His mind. There's more than merely a restored physical kingdom of Israel. Okay, fifth, John knows, and this is important, John knows that Jesus is the Christ. He knows it. When he sees Him, he nearly refuses to baptize Him. He says to his Lord, No! (laughs) right and Jesus doesn't rebuke him he says no this is necessary right when he sees him he nearly refuses to baptism seems like a logical conclusion since he's not even worthy to untie his sandals he knows Jesus is the coming one and if he didn't know it before he knew it after the baptism because what happens the spirit falls and God's words come out of heaven right This is my beloved Son. Now, if you're reading this chapter alone and you never heard anything more about John, would you say that John was on the fence about Jesus? No. Would you think that John was confused, even a little, about whether Jesus was the coming Christ? No. I don't think so either. I just don't see that in this chapter. In fact, not only here, but in every Gospel account, John is the first and perhaps even the most faithful voice to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ until the Spirit falls on Peter in Acts. So what's happened between chapter 3 and chapter 11? What's happened to shake John's confidence? Prison happened. It's time to read our passage. Read it again. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there and teach and preach in their cities. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word to his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by Me. So this story begins with these words, now when John heard in prison. And just to be honest here, I was initially puzzled as to the order of Matthew's account of John. We're given glimpses of his ministry in chapter 3, and then in passing, We're told that he's in prison in chapter 11. And not until chapter 14 are we told why when Matthew gives an account of his death. And as you read this passage in particular, John's imprisonment mentioned in passing prompts loads of questions. But I wonder whether those questions are supposed to loom over this passage. I wonder if we're supposed to ask, wait, what? John John is in prison? Why? What happened? The sense of injustice would be there, right? The sense of confusion. You might even wonder whether this was supposed to have happened at all. And those questions would be appropriate, I think, because those were probably the questions that John was asking. If you closed your eyes, you could almost see it unfold. John bound in chains... Visited by his bewildered disciples, and they deliver reports of the works and words of Jesus. This mighty man, could he indeed be the Messiah teacher? Even the demons flee him. He commands the dead to rise. It's rumored that he could feed thousands with a single loaf of bread. I can imagine John hearing these reports and fighting the impression that he'd been forgotten. the captivity of john the forerunner and the mighty works of jesus the christ seemed to be mutually exclusive realities fundamentally at odds with one another they shouldn't they shouldn't happen in the same world right so john sends a loaded question to his cousin and perhaps driving this question is fear or doubt or frustration or impatience we don't really know But behind the question is certainly a sense of confusion. I don't understand what's happening. Please, Lord, help me understand. Jesus responds by saying and by showing. And what he's saying and showing is clearly an allusion to the prophecies of Isaiah. The blind see, the lame walk, Isaiah 35. The dead rise, Isaiah 26. And finally, the poor have good news preached to them. Now at that moment, every faithful Israelite who'd spent Sabbath after Sabbath searching the Scriptures would recall the promise of Isaiah 61. The rumor, in fact, buzzing around Galilee and Judea was that Jesus Himself had claimed that His prophecy was a fulfillment of this very important, very Messianic passage. Notice what he doesn't say. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring news to the poor, good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound. I am the promised Messiah that opens blind eyes. I am the promised Messiah that heals crippled limbs. I am the promised Messiah that cleanses lepers. And I am the promised Messiah that preaches good news to the poor. And at that moment, Jesus might have said, I am the promised Messiah that frees the captive. I am the promised Messiah that opens prison doors. And what a relief that would have been to John. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, at this point, there's a lot of discussion among people who study the Bible as to why he said what he said and why he stopped short. Some conclude that John was merely slow to read the evidence that his initial claims that Jesus was the Christ weren't altogether established in John's heart and that John was among those whom Jesus would lovingly address you of little faith. Some look forward to Matthew 9:14 and ask John like his disciples and asked whether John like his disciples was disturbed by the lack of impropriety of the company that John kept he was surrounded by tax collectors and sinners and they didn't seem terribly concerned with disciplines like fasting and keeping the sabbath disciplines by the way which John had passed on to his disciples Some look back at John's preaching and they see John's emphasis on God's vengeance. And these readers suspect that Jesus is subtly reminding John that He is indeed the Messiah. But the vengeance of God isn't for right here and right now. The vengeance of God and the restoration of Israel is for the day of the Lord that's yet to come. I'm not sure that these answers go far enough. See, when Jesus chooses to catalog God's lavish promises about the coming Messiah, yet just at the the moment wherein you would expect captives freed and prison doors opened, He issues a warning. I think He was speaking directly to John in his distress. And I think He was saying, yes, I am the Messiah. But for you, my dear brother, the freedom that you're hoping for is on the other side of the resurrection. And if that's what this passage is truly communicating, the rich blessing and the gentle warning that follows has gravity. Blessed is the one who endures even when I call them to die. The language here is of tripping or stumbling. When the ESV has blessed is the one who isn't offended by me, Other translations have, blessed is the one who doesn't stumble because of me. And in either case, the sense of the warning is clear. The call to follow Jesus is a call to follow him to the cross. It is a call to do hard things, to experience suffering, to endure seasons of waiting, persecution, and ostracism and pain. It's a call to die. And yes, on the other side of that death is a kingdom of peace. And all things are new there. No more sin. No more suffering. The restoration of all things and an unending celebration of God's glory. But how easy is it to lose sight of that kingdom that's not yet for the suffering that's right here and right now? How easy is it to ask, are you who you said you are? Do you intend to keep your promises? Because right now you seem a thousand miles away, and I can't wrap my mind around why you would have me here, suffering like this. If you are a Christian and you haven't prayed that prayer, you will. It would be so easy to give up hope just then. But blessed are those who don't. Just a few more steps, dear friend. Just a few more years of prison. You're nearly there. And no, I won't stop this suffering because what I'm doing with you and your story and my Gospel is beyond your reckoning. But you're nearly there. And oh, how blessed are those who endure to the end. You see, Jesus is shifting John's expectations and ours about the nature of His call and the nature of His work so that we trust Him even through unspeakable pain. Even through breathtaking loss, even when it all seems to be falling apart. And notice how he says it. Blessed are those who aren't offended by me, who don't trip over me. Over me. That's bigger than his call, that's bigger than the cross. It's Jesus himself that might become an obstacle to our following Jesus. This is what I think that means. Walking with Jesus is a very personal matter. It's the Spirit of Christ within us. It's the words of Christ that guide us. It's the intercession of Christ that keeps us. We pray to Him. We wait for His wisdom. We hope in His promises. It's you and it's Jesus. So when it becomes very clear that Jesus is calling you to endure pain, calling you to cling in hope, In a season of despair, calling you to step away from momentary pleasures and to pour out your life on the lost and on the least, when it becomes clear that there's suffering before you and no end in sight, it's hard to shake that Jesus, King of the universe, could snap His fingers and it would be otherwise. But He doesn't. And sometimes that feels like abandonment. And what you choose to do with that distress, with that nearly overwhelming burden, shows what your faith is made of. And blessed are those who aren't offended by him. So how does this passage apply to you right now in your life? I can think of two ways, or rather I can think of two sorts of people Number one, to those who feel abandoned. Do you feel abandoned by your king? Do you find yourself facing suffering that doesn't seem to have an end? You're not alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. That's the song that Jesus was singing on the cross. Our King went before us. He felt that sort of isolation. He felt grief and He cried out in pain. What does this passage have to say about that sense of abandonment? Look again at Jesus' words to John. Listen and look, he says. Remember what I've done. Remember I've opened eyes. I've caused the dead to rise. I've encouraged broken hearts and I've healed broken limbs. The path beyond despair is paved with memories of the work of Jesus. Remember what sort of king he is. You have life because He raised you. You have sight because He opened your eyes. And every season yet, He's kept you. He's been your strength. He's not failed you. I just read to you the first paragraph of Psalm 22. Let me read you the next paragraph. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day. But you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Listen, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried when they were in a situation just like mine. To you they cried, and they were rescued. In you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. How do you fight the conviction that you've been truly forgotten? You remember that this God is not the sort that forgets. He redeems those who trust in Him. He delivers those who call to Him. They trusted in Him and they were not put to shame. Remember and rehearse. Remember, how many times did the Psalms say, To my soul? I said, To my soul. You find yourself feeling forgotten? You preach to your soul what Christ has already done for you and all those who have preceded you. Recall the works of God. Remember the works of Christ in your life and in the lives of your brothers and sisters. Second, to those who feel offended. Maybe you're in the midst of a season of suffering or seemingly pointless pain and you find yourself frustrated. Is this really who you are? You led me here? Maybe you're fighting disillusionment. Maybe you're questioning whether God is really good. Or if He's good, whether He's really powerful. Because surely, an all-good, all-powerful God wouldn't let a mess like this unfold. (sighs) I think this passage teaches you that you've misunderstood at least a bit the nature of the work of Jesus. Or at least His timing. There are a lot of featherlight presentations of the gospel in our context. There are a lot of pe- pre- I'm sorry, there are a lot of people teaching that Jesus is the key to your best life now. Wealth, health right now. comfort, peace right now. Maybe you came to Christ under these pretenses. Or maybe over the years, you came to expect that following Jesus was a life of relative ease. Middle class social engagement. Middle class perks. Maybe you thought that faithfulness in the trenches was a thing that happened, but just not here. Not in a place like this. And then your life took an unexpected turn and all your expectations have been disappointed. Christ's message to John meets you Precisely where you are. It is no harsh rebuke. It's a gentle reminder spoken in love. Yes, friend, I am the Christ. I am the King. I am in control. But you may not see most of the benefits of the kingdom on this side of the grave. Are you okay with that? Blessed are those who don't stumble over the already-not-yet kingdom. Yes, we have peace. Yes, we have community. Yes, we're freed from sin. Amen. Jesus has done this. But the life of a Christ follower is a life of war. The life of a Christ follower can often feel isolating. The life of a Christ follower is a life of constant repentance because the kingdom is not yet. Take heart. You've only got the timing wrong. When Christ returns or takes you home, His kingdom is everything you hope it will be and more. The real question is whether you can endure the cross for the joy set before you. In Christ, you can. Amen? Let's pray.